Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, your favorite crossover podcast uh, between comics and movies. I am your co-host, Matt, and I'm here with my co-host, Dustin. Dustin, say hello to the people. Yo, yo, yo. Today we're going to talk about Sword in the Stone and Equinox. So to preface why we're talking about Sword in the Stone is, of course, a 1963 animated Disney movie. So allow me to explain why I ended up choosing this, because it probably seems even more exceptionally random than some of the other stuff. And I'm sure you were a little confuzzled when you were watching it. True or false, you were you were confuzzled as to why I had picked it. Um, well, that's not a word, so I don't yeah. acknowledge that question. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, should we do a little pre-show banter for the people? Um, like, talk about what we had for lunch? or. Yeah, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I had two fried eggs, which is what I eat for breakfast pretty much every day. Why is that? Well, I have celiac disease, so I can't eat toast or bread. What Try not to some... eat too, some cereal because I, my son uses the milk because he's two, so he drinks milk. So try not to use up all the milk with the cereal. Um, and then, yeah, no bread products so that doesn't leave a whole lot. So eggs. What about some fruit? Do you ever work fruit into there? Yeah, like maybe a banana. Is a banana fruit? Yeah, is that... okay, yeah that's, that's fruit. Oh, okay. okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, you didn't ask me what I had for breakfast, but that's okay. We'll move on. Um, so Sword in the Stone... Uh, this is a Disney movie, and yes, um, Matt, you picked this, and it leads me to wonder, why are you so obsessed with King Arthur? Would you like to explain? Well, I do like King Arthur a lot, and I do like King Arthur stories. Um, I'm not you know, an expert or a genius of any kind. But I I do have a thing for King Arthur. The reason I picked this is because it's based on the T.H. White fantasy novel, Once in Future King. And Once in Future King is divided into four sections. And the first section is called The Sword in the Stone. So ostensibly, this is an adaptation of a fantasy novel, right? And the novel itself has some very interesting things in it. Very little of that made it into the movie. So they seem to have adapted this interesting fantasy novel and turned it into kind of a standard sort of Disney movie. Were you which expecting I was otherwise? By. Well, I mean, some of the things that are interesting in the novel, I didn't see any reason why they couldn't be in the movie. But in the movie, it, it's a lot of animals chasing each other around and whatnot. Um, Would you like to get... I mean, there are, some, I guess, some kind of neat... yeah. Would you like to give the people a brief overcap of what it is okay. that the Sword in the Stone uh, entails story-wise? So Sword in the Stone is about King Arthur. It's about his life as a kid. So he is adopted out to a family, and he is raised as a squire, so not as a knight or as a noble. And he sort of has these adventures as a kid, and then he meets Merlin. And Merlin is, of course, a sorcerer who becomes his tutor and Merlin has access to all this magic and he can make all kinds of crazy things happen. And it's the life story leading up to when he gets the sword. So in the book, he gets the sword towards the end of the book 
Um, and some of the things that make the book Sword in the Stone interesting is one is Merlin as a character uh, lives backwards through time. So he's been to the future. He he comes to being at some indeterminate point in the future, and then he goes backwards uh, through time. So he's already been to our time, and he's been to all of the history intervening between us and King Arthur. And now he's in King Arthur, and the time that he meets King Arthur as a boy at the beginning is actually the last time that he gets to see him. So he's actually very sad when he meets King Arthur because it's like he's seen his death, and he's seen all the awful things that happened in the future. And now he gets to meet him as a boy. So there's an interesting sort of tone there. There's an interesting sort of tone there with the Merlin character. Um, as we see in the movie, this is the part that actually made it into the movie, is the fact that he turns him into animals to teach him like little lessons, right? That and this does is in happen the book. In, in the movie, yes. Yes, and the more interesting ones, though, are cut out. Because, for example, in the book, he turns him into an ant, and uh, he goes to visit an anthill. And the anthill is set up as this very authoritarian society where the ants only have a handful of words to express language. And they live in, like, this caste-based society with no individuality. And then he turns into a falcon, and he meets with the other falcons in the castle, and they have this code of honor. They're like knights who practice chivalry. Uh, with their, you know, when they go out on their hunts. So he meets he meets different kinds of animals and he learns like little life lessons that are applicable to his future status as king. Basically, none of that is in the movie. In the movie, he gets turned into a fish and a sparrow. And is is that it or is there one more? He turns into a squirrel, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And he does turn into a fish in the book, and he meets the, like, boss fish that lives in the moat. That's like a bully. And all of the little adventures he has as an animal, as a child, inform the way he sees the world as an adult. Right? Because when he grows up, he wants to get rid of the bullies or the rule of, the rule of, like, might makes right or the rule of, like, the warlords that are pushing people around. And he sees an example of that as a kid when he turns into a fish and meets the like the fish that bosses the other fish around inside the castle moat. And, you know, the interesting thing in the novel, too, is he specifically talks about how when he gets older, he gradually loses the memories of the time when he turned into an animal and only remembers the lessons in the way that you kind of forget things as you become older. And it seems like a childish, you know, fantasy almost, even though we reading the book know that it really happened. And again, that's all very interesting and is not really in the Disney movie. Also in the Disney movie, there's an evil witch that Merlin has a wizard duel with, which reminded me of a previous film we watched entitled The Raven, where Vincent Price and Boris Karloff have a wizard duel. Yeah. And the, then... wizard, duel, the wizard duel was a little fun. You know, I don't mind the animation. In, in some ways, it, it feels... A little old-fashioned and I was trying to read reviews of this and they said it was kind of considered not really cutting edge even at the time but you know I don't mind some of the color schemes and stuff and some of like the pastel colors that do give it a little more of a fantasy touch yeah I enjoyed I mean visually I enjoyed it I did like the wizard duel um, that was fun and I also liked when he turned into a fish I thought that was the most interesting aspect of it I feel like the the problem with this film is that the story 
and maybe this is just uh, a result of them like cherry picking some scenes to put together from the book that it's adapted from. But the story doesn't really have any overarching structure to it. It's like he gets turned into a couple animals and then he stumbles upon an evil witch. Uh, I can't recall the witch's name. Uh, and then Mim. Mim, yes, Mim. He stumbles into Mim's house and then Mim and Merlin have a duel and then he happens to pull the sword out of the stone and the movie ends. It's like there's no, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of connecting tissue, like putting these things together. And we kind of talked about this before in terms of like myths and how like Excalibur was often felt like a sort of a series of vignettes. Um, and I guess Sword in the Stone to me also kind of has a similar problem where it's like you have these separate, like discrete, smaller stories that are kind of linked together by the fact that they all have King Arthur in them. Yeah, and you mentioned the witch that he meets, Mim. I mean, that's not in the book either. So some of that is just invented. So it's like they, they adapted this book. They cut out a lot of stuff, and then they just made up other stuff to almost like fill out the space because it's like a really short movie. It's like an hour. I think it's about 80 minutes long. And even with that, it starts to feel a little tedious towards the end. Yeah, I think part of the reason why it starts to feel tedious is because like there's no overarching dramatic flow to the story it's like once the animal stuff is done then it's like why are we still watching this oh yeah it's because he has to still has to pull the sword out of the stone but that there's no really no like build up to that it's just like he needs to find a sword because he's his brother's squire so he's like oh hey here's a sword and he pulls it out and then the movie basically ends yeah and the thing one of the things that makes the book interesting of course is it relies on your meta knowledge um which is in the book sort of in the form of merlin right because merlin's been to the future and he always talks and makes references to very anachronistic things that the other characters don't understand which is actually something that makes it in the movie merlin talking about stuff from our time that's in the book the merlin as an anachronistic character and we know the tragedy that waits in arthur's future the book presupposes that you know who King Arthur is, right? So we know what happens to Arthur. And we know that his life ends in basically ruin. And now we're seeing the adventures of him as like a completely guileless young child. So there's there's some interesting kind of layers that are happening there. And yeah, for the movie, you, you, you get basically none of that. Did you find it odd that when he was turned into a squirrel, the whole... It just became this extended sequence of this female squirrel kept trying to, you know, make some sweet squirrel love to him. And the whole scene was just him getting chased around by this other squirrel. Like, that seemed like it was like one joke that went on forever. Yeah, some of those sequences seem to go on really long. That's why I liked um, the fish sequence, because I felt like there was some uh, varying in the adventures in when he was a fish. Like, there was the big fish, and he meets, like, a frog and so on and so forth yeah no some of the sequences do start to feel long and like i said in the book they're all kinds of different animals and he learns kind of lessons and things and sees society from different types of perspectives and some of them i think in here are just kind of played for for kind of some laughs um and again i don't know what i expected as a disney movie but it is a really good book and it seems rare i don't know disney doesn't normally adapt i don't think a lot of books i guess they adapt a lot of public domain material but 
meaning King Arthur is public domain, but it very clearly is based on the book because it follows very vaguely the kind of plot outline. So you're saying the epic fantasy novel was ill-served by being adapted by Disney into a 75-minute cartoon? I suppose I am saying that, yeah, which seems like a very obvious thing. You know, and the book, I believe they were originally published as four books, so it is a complete... It was meant to be, I mean, it is a complete book um, ending with him getting this the sword, but you are getting like 25% of a story. Last thought, some of the color schemes were nice. Some of the sequences are kind of fun. Like you said, the wizard duel is kind of a visually kind of a good time. And I like the story concept of the young kid becoming king who doesn't want to be king. Oh, we know you do. Yeah. Well, because I, I like King Arthur. No, I've noticed. Yes. You know, one of my favorite parts from this book book other than when he meets like the ants and he goes to their weird communist like Khmer Rouge world is when he actually becomes king and he gets the sword and he actually starts to cry because it's so sad he doesn't want to and everyone is now bowing to him and he just wants life to go back to the way it was and there's like that tragedy element you know like he's destined to become king and we know that his life actually turns out to be ruinous and becoming King Arthur is actually sort of a downgrade in some ways. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not sure that even... I mean, this movie is not terrible by any means, but it's fairly forgettable. Even, I think, as a piece of animation from this time period, it's probably not what you would hold up as like a classic Disney animated film. Right. If it wasn't for, I think, this connection to like King Arthur myths, I would imagine it would probably be much, much less well regarded. Um, I did like the owl. There's a talking owl sidekick. He's kind of fun. Yeah. Is he in the book? A talking owl? I don't remember. Oh, should I well, look it up? Should I look it up and you can edit in the answer? So I sound smart. Uh, no, that's okay. I'll leave okay. this part in though. Okay. So that I sound dumb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has been a while since I read the book, but. Okay. So, in summation, Sword in the Stone, it's a movie? It is, it is, it is technically a movie. So, speaking of things which are things, uh, there are, there is also something that we both read, which is a comic book entitled Equinoxes by the French cartoonist Cibral Pedrosa. And if you want a segue, if you read his cover jacket blurb, it says he actually worked on some animation for Disney. Uh, Yes, Uh, let's see here. Which which if you squint, you can kind of see that in some of the, in some of the art. Yeah, he worked on. He went to work on such Disney animated feature films as *The Hunchback of Notre Dame* and *Hercules*. And this is Equinox's is a kind of epic story of that's set across these four seasons. It is about a group of characters and sort of how their lives intertwine and touch upon each other in these various ways and it's kind of sort of about death and about meaning and about like time 
uh, it's it's kind of it's a lot. I, I uh, really enjoyed it, especially you know as you get going, you start to find all of these the the links between the characters become clearer, and they're not always in ways that you expect. And also, he the art in this he uses like a different style for each season. So like the beginning, it has this. Uh, like pen and ink kind of style and then as it goes on there's like a section that almost looks like i'm no art expert so i'm just kind of guessing but it almost looks like colored pencil and then it continues to go in sort of like a monochromatic uh style like towards the end yeah um and there's also there's these like really interesting interludes where there's a photographer character who takes pictures of people and then it kind of like the images sort of like uh break down and you sort of like into like constituent parts and then there'll be like a page of text where you're like getting the thoughts of the person who had their picture taken so it almost like becomes this like meta commentary on like images and the meaning that can be found inside images and like the idea of you know, the image maker versus the image viewer and interpreting it. Um, so yeah. anyway, there's a there's a lot going on in this uh, comic, and I overall thought it was pretty great. What did you think of Equinoxes? I also liked it a lot. Like you said, there's a lot going on because he also does these segues back into time where you see like these cavemen, and you don't really know there's a cave boy. Uh, and you don't really know how that relates, but then it ends up tying in into the end. And one thing that I thought was interesting was, as you mentioned, the art style kind of shifts throughout. And there are times where it starts in one style. And then I think as, as a, a scene goes on, it changes and it'll like shift slightly into something else. So that you end up looking at something different than what it started as. It's almost made me think of in a film, uh, putting it slightly out of focus or the effect of adding like a colored filter partway through a scene or something like there are times where the images become more blurry and almost like scratchy as a scene goes on. And as you mentioned with the photographer angle too, cause they'll take a picture and then it'll like zoom into the picture uh, where it starts to look more impressionistic now that you're so close to it. And then it, it, it'll pull back to a page of text and give you like the internal narrative of this person that is now existing as a flat image. And then the story, of course, is starts sort of about this protest over an airport being built. And then it kind of branches out from there. And all these characters' lives are interconnected. I saw a review where they said it's the comic book equivalent of an independent film, which feels kind of lazy and reductionist in some ways. But it's kind of true because it reminds me of those kind of sprawling um, films where you see everybody's interconnected lives, you know? Where it's like this, where it's like your this... Magnolia or your uh, shortcuts, like that kind of a thing. Right, that kind of a thing where it's like this three and a half hour movie about regular people and all the ways that their lives kind of sync up with each other. And as you mentioned, you don't even know when you start how they all sync up, but they are all connected in a variety of ways, even the cave people. And it ties into like the airport protest, which then causes like unforeseen side effects in other people's lives. And as it shifts through the seasons, you know, it changes into different kinds of color palettes. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's a lot to go through. Um, 
and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that I didn't even pick up. I, I feel like you'd probably have to read it twice to really take in all the details. You know, uh, it's interesting for like a film comparison because I feel like this comic sort of does, you know, like the, the way that the visual shift throughout the story is something that I think is kind of uniquely comic, like unique, like unique to a comic book, which I think allows it to be more interesting than if it was just like, you know, a film, if that makes sense. Like the way that he shifts the visuals around and the way that like one scene will be highlighted like with a certain color and then it'll be a later scene that will be all like scratchy and gray. I don't know, like uh Yeah, I always, and the way I always it, find it, jumps... it weird. I mean, I know that you were just that you weren't really making this comparison just some as referencing, but I always find it odd or maybe a little weird when people compare feel the need to compare comic books to films because they're actually like extremely different and i think this sort of highlights some of the things that like comics can do so much that like a film would be much more difficult to like convey and yeah i was just make it's an easy it's an easy comparison to make in some ways because they're both visual mediums but it, it does break down pretty easily um one of the things for example that this does that you can't do in a film is the switch between art and prose because it gives you like prose sometimes several and of course on a page you can interpose that wherever you wish and that's again something you can't really do on a film yeah and i uh really enjoyed those little prose segments like i said before it kind of puts you in this interesting space of like the characters uh capturing images and then like letting you inside the world of that image and then in that itself ends up, you know, making you think more about the images that you're seeing in the comic itself. And I thought it was interesting how the photographer character uh, does not spend, like for a large part of the book, as I recall, the photographer character is actually not someone that you really know that much about. It's only until later that you get to kind of like see what her deal is. And And as you said, her life then also kinds of ends up becoming intertwined with the uh, this airport that they're trying to build. Yeah, um, yeah, it's and sort of like a really uh, mundane incident, you know. Like you were comparing this to other films, like, and it always seems like there's some kind of inciting incident where everything like comes together, and in this, it's like the building of an airport and the related protests around that. Yeah, and it never, I wouldn't say it ever really even comes together. No, it's um, not like it, all the characters all end up meeting each other or something. Yeah, and, you know, one of the characters even dies off, off page. So it it really, it, it almost like resists an attempt to, to all be included in one thing. Like it, it resists, like it starts out and it kind of sprawls out and it like resists any attempt to like pull it back in because it, it stays pretty sprawled out. There are some more connections at the end, certainly, that we didn't see at the beginning. But for the most part, it, it's kind of its own thing. Yeah. And it gives this sort of melancholy feel to the story and the characters, because a lot of them are not really successful at the things they're trying to do, and they're just kind of getting older. And that I think that makes sense with the whole 
the title, of course, referencing like the passage of the seasons and stuff. There was an interesting line I remember. If you remember the two guys, the brothers, right? And one yes. of whom is divorced and has um, a daughter who's probably in her late teens. who's like college age, maybe. And then his brother is a priest. And they make some kind of reference to a quote by Virginia Woolf's husband who said something that if he'd spent his whole life playing ping pong, the world would not have been noticeably different. And then they say something like, we're waiting to stop playing ping pong or something. Like just the stuff that we do to pass the time. And then you wake up and you're like 90. Yeah, because that scene that you're talking about comes toward the end. And it's really interesting because it has these two characters like talking in a cabin. And then as the scene goes on, he like stops drawing the furniture and the surrounding until he's just like drawing the characters as like their conversation sort of like transcends the location that they're in. Yeah. And they're they're actually laying on bunk beds, right? And then the P the perspective shifts so that you're looking down at them and the bunk beds are erased so it looks like one of them is standing behind the other one yeah and that's an example of what i was talking about is the art style shifting within a scene it's like almost mutating before your eyes which again is very cool and very specific to a page to like a comic art form yeah and that scene i think highlights one of the interesting thematic concerns of the book which is how you know, the one guy, he is asking his brother, like, is it too late to stop playing ping pong? Because he kind of feels like he's got to this point in his life where he hasn't accomplished anything. But one of the things that goes on in the book is the way people's lives affect each other, whether they acknowledge it or not, or whether they even necessarily notice it or not. Because one of the biggest, like, turning points in the book is the discovery of the footprints left over by like uh, a primitive like caveman boy inside a cave, which at the time for that character was just like this incidental thing that they didn't really, you know, think anything of. But then him leaving these footprints then ends up having this like cascading ripple effect into all these other people's lives, which right. again, I guess is something that's common to this like style of story. Um, but like, it adds like a, it makes that scene I think resonant because the guy is feeling like he hasn't accomplished anything in his life, but whether he acknowledges it or not, he has actually had you know effects out into the world. Right, and we don't know what the effects are with like the rippled effects into everyone else's lives. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say too. I think the background the author's background in animation becomes clear in the in the way that he depicts movement of the characters. And I think, like, the, um, if you want to call it, like, the acting of the characters and just the movement of them is really fluid and really lifelike, which I think is important because... You know, there are a lot of scenes in this comic that are just like people talking or people reading or people, you know, like normal life stuff. And I think he does a great job with a lot of different styles and a lot of different use of materials that we talked about in depicting sort of the lifelike, you know, poses and expressions and movements of these characters. And yeah, like, I don't know if that's something that comes from 
the animation background, but it seems like maybe that's part of the influence of that. I'm going to make a, a tiny, tiny complaint. Okay. And I don't know if you have the same problem. You have a print copy, right? Yes. The lettering in my copy is not the best. It it looks like it just doesn't it it doesn't look like I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to explain without without showing it, but I was kind of thrown when I started reading it because you really have this tremendous art um, and then you have this like translated lettering. I don't know if it looks if you get that impression when you look at yours, but I was reading the digital copy and I don't know if for the digital one, the lettering was done. I guess I didn't have any complaints about the lettering. And again, that's not really the author's fault. That would be the whoever uh, published it in English. One thing that was cool was the the thing that shifts the whole plot, like you mentioned, is finding these um or is this uh, the caveman's feet ends up being extremely important and is found by a character that we first meet as an internal narrative of one of the pictures being taken. And you learn a lot about their life, but they're never really in the comic. Yeah, you yeah, you, you learn their internal narration because someone takes their picture, but they're not actually like a character that does a lot in the story itself. Right, it kind of shifts like in and out. It's almost like going um, into the foreground with the foreground characters, and then it jumps into the background. And you have like background characters that are important, but you don't get as much uh, page time or page space as many panels with them. And it kind of seamlessly jumps back and forth, just as it's shifting between the art styles and the color scheme. And you know, it goes from season to season to season. Each season has a little interlude. It's a very interestingly structured story. Yeah, I think that we would both agree that um, Equinoxes is pretty dang good, and that it uh is ve- it's a very dense comic. It's like a, I have the like the paper copy here, and it's a large hardcover that you could club a burglar with. But yeah, it's it's uh, really good. Do you have any, uh, do you want to put in any final thoughts on the uh, Equinoxes by Sibril Pedrosa? I would be curious to read some of his other things. I was actually looking online and he has some kind of fantasy story. Oh, that would, which be, I would yeah, be. Yeah, that would seem very apt to his like visual uh, tendencies, his visual yeah. style. So I would be curious to read more. I really don't read as many quote-unquote indie comics, which is a weird term, but that's the term we're stuck with, as I should. But I would be definitely interested to read more uh, by this author. So what are you defining as indie comics, like just things that are not published by Marvel or DC? I don't even know if there's a real definition. Indie comics would be, in my mind, I guess, things not published by like the top five-ish comics publishers, which would be Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse, and IDW, maybe, something like that. But I mean, this being a French comic, or as they would say in France, a bande dessinée, it comes from like a completely different tradition. So well, then not... what would you call it then? I would call it a comic book. Okay. But hey, that's just me. I'm just a guy. I don't read enough of whatever this is because I liked it and there should be more of it. Um, and I just never am cultured enough to get around to a stack of 
whatever these are. So what else should we talk about? Would you like to recommend something or no? I would just recommend the novel, The Once in Future King by T.H. White, which is a really good novel and has the trivia of having the first part of it. The first it's like it's like how Lord of the Rings is like three books and it's like one book. You read it as one book, but it's like sort of three books. This is sort of four books, but you read it as one. You can usually just read it as one book. The first portion of it was adapted into an animated Disney movie, but it's actually a really good book, and I would recommend it. There's a lot of interesting angles in it that I kind of talked about when I was comparing the Disney movie to it. And yeah, it's a really good book. I would recommend The Once and Future King by T.H. White. So that is, I imagine, a pretty large book since i have it right here it is 639 pages oh okay so it's a you know it's a solid a solid solid, uh yeah it's a solid tome i would recommend another uh french comic book that is called peplum and it is by an author who goes by the name of blutch the nom de plume the nom de plume of blutch and Peplum is a story set in ancient Rome, and it's about the kind. It's kind of about this guy who falls in love with a woman that's been frozen in ice, and he's transporting her back to ancient Rome, but the ice is melting, and so it's kind of like his the love of his life is sort of like uh, dripping away before his eyes, and it kind of also then goes into some other. Uh, aspects or some other like things going on in ancient Rome. It's sort of like a impressionistic kind of like fantasy sort of story. That's it's not like what you would maybe call like historical fiction so much as like a personal kind of emotional story that happens to be set in ancient Rome. Unlike the title might suggest that it's like a, you know, sword and sandal beat them up kind of story, but it's uh, not that at all. It's this weird, wonderful, interesting comic book that I would uh, really recommend. It's called Peplum. All right, that's our show. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to know what Dustin had for breakfast. You can ask him on Twitter at Dustin44444. I am on Twitter at Army of Crime. Our website is armyofcrime.com where we put up all the links for all the stuff. So if you can't remember what we said, but you remember it, it sounded something interesting with Roman Ice Queen time travels or whatever, you can go on there and find it. As always, you can definitely leave us a review if we want. Those are very much appreciated. Um, the algorithm gods are pleased by reviews and they boost you up and down the charts do you have anything you'd like to add to our show sending off segment i'd just like to say that it's important to have a good breakfast and you know i don't always have a good breakfast but when i do i try to make it very filling uh, and have a few different uh, items in there yeah so you don't get hungry before lunch right Yeah, that's important.
Remember, everyone, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Couldn't have said it better myself. I know why internet services are bad because they are, many of them are basically monopolies. So 